I next met with Dr. David Oyhus, and to begin, he presented a patient from his practice. I recently had a 55-year-old woman come in who had had some calcifications identified on her screening mammogram. And that led to a stereotactic core needle biopsy that returned grade 3 DCIS with comedonecrosis. It was a small lesion, about a centimeter and a half. And she had read the New York Times article that was suggesting that DCIS may not be relevant, that DCIS is not like colon polyps, where if you take them out, it prevents the cancer in the future. And she was actually suggesting, you know, what if I do nothing at all about this DCIS? It's interesting. What's her background? Oh, she's well-educated, professional woman, healthy otherwise, but obviously a reader. And it's interesting because the same type of woman might have come in a couple years ago and said, I want double mastectomies for this little DCIS, because it's obviously terrifying to hear the word cancer. But DCIS is appropriately getting a lot of attention lately. It's in a sense and in some ways an artifact of screening mammography, those little calcifications are very well visualized by screening mammograms. And since screening mammography became widespread, we've seen a significant increase in the rate of diagnosis of DCIS. You know, it's just flashing on some of the work that's been done at Hopkins on prostate cancer. And I was just trying to think, do we know what the incidence is at asymptomatic DCIS at autopsy, kind of the same way as in prostate cancer? Yeah, I don't know about DCIS alone, but the combination of DCIS invasive cancer and autopsy series is you know, around 40%. 40%? 40%. Wow. And the prostate is the male breast in a sense. There's so much similarity in terms of natural history and hormone sensitivity. And the urologists got out ahead of us in terms of recognizing that there are indolent, slow-growing lesions that don't require any treatment at all. And we're kind of catching up now with the breast. You know, it's interesting because I was just thinking when you were saying that, we had kind of a closed think tank of prostate cancer investigators not that long ago where we were talking a lot about genomic assays as a way to identify people who could just have active surveillance. And we'll talk about some of the clinical data that maybe prompted your patient to question this, but before we even do that, what about the possibility of genomic assays to pick out the patients who could just be observed? Right, that's where we're headed and that's where we want to be. We're still a little primitive now and haven't seen any major advances in the last couple of years to help us pick out which of these lesions are going to progress and which aren't. But David Page did an interesting study a number of years ago. I think the first publication was 1982, where he went back over thousands of biopsies that had been done at Vanderbilt and found a group of 28 women who had DCIS that was not picked up. So they never got treatment, and this was all low-grade DCIS. And then he asked the question, what happened to those women over time? And ultimately followed them for about 30 years. And the rate of progression, this is for low-grade DCIS, was between 25 and 50%. And so that's a very crude assay, is just looking at grade under the microscope. 
higher grade DCIS is going to have a higher progression rate than that. But that's what we're stuck with at this point. And people are starting to develop trials that look at screen-detected DCIS that's not high-grade, and that's estrogen receptor positive, and perhaps just treating those patients with tamoxifen. But that kind of tells you how far we have to go. In terms of genomic assays, there's this oncotype DCIS assay, but that's more designed to tell us what the progression to invasive cancer will be if we don't do radiation after surgical excision versus if we do do radiation. So that doesn't really help us with picking out which lesion we can just safely ignore and take a watchful waiting approach. And of course, an awful lot of work is being done, and we're part of some of that with the capabilities of doing this whole genome profiling and People are actively pursuing the right markers that would help us distinguish DCIS that will progress from DCIS that won't progress. But right now, we don't have that. So when I diagnose a DCIS, I have a very limited toolbox to help me figure out who needs treatment, who doesn't. So we generally treat everybody the same. Maybe you could comment on the JAMA Oncology paper that I think prompted the New York Times and other media to talk about it, and also the editorial by Laura Esserman. Incidentally, had this patient actually read the JAMA Oncology paper? No, she had just read the New York Times article. And yeah, I thought the paper was really interesting. Can you talk about what they looked at there and what you think it meant? Well, that was a SEER study, so it's retrospective data from the Surveillance Epidemiology and Endpoints Group. And the main take-home message and what everybody seized on was the fact that if you had a DCIS treated by excision and got no radiation, you had the same ultimate breast cancer-specific mortality as if you got radiation. So basically, adding radiation to a lumpectomy didn't reduce breast cancer-specific mortality, and that's what everyone seized on. And... What it showed us is stuff that we kind of already know about DCIS. And one is that the mortality rate is very low. So in this very large study, I think there were 108,000 women, the breast cancer-specific mortality was less than 1% for that group, according to their follow-up time. And the whole point of treating DCIS is to reduce the risk of progression to invasive cancer. That's always been the goal. We've never talked about mortality in relation to DCIS because let's just you know admit that getting an invasive cancer is not a pleasant outcome. It's going to lead to more testing, more treatment. And if you can avoid that, that's a good thing. So doing an excision, we know from prior studies, is going to reduce that progression to invasive cancer down to about a 15 to 20% level over, say, 10 years, compared to a 50% level for 30 years from the PAGE study. And if you add radiation to that, it's going to cut it in half, down to you know maybe a 7 to 9% level. So that's been a standard recommendation for DCIS, is lumpectomy followed by radiation with the goal of reducing invasive breast cancer. Now, I'm not surprised that radiation did not show a survival advantage. 
We know from studies in invasive cancer that unless your local recurrence rates are getting up to about 1% per year, you can't show survival benefit from local treatments with a reasonably sized study and reasonable follow-up. The local recurrence or the progression rate in this JAMA Oncology article was 0.3% per year. So there was a very, very low event rate. And survival was a little better in the radiated group than the unradiated group, but not statistically significant and certainly not clinically significant. But again, that's related to the fact that the event rates are very low and you need higher event rates than that to show survival benefits from local therapies. So I'm curious about your discussions with this woman. What did you discuss with her and what did she elect to do? Well, what people, I think, came away from that New York Times piece and some of the other media was the idea that you can just ignore DCIS. And we talked about the fact that that JAMA oncology paper did not tell us anything about untreated DCIS. And the studies that we have tell us that untreated DCIS will progress in up to 50% of cases. And with a high-grade lesion like this, it's even more likely to progress. We talked about avoiding an invasive cancer in the future being a good thing. And ultimately, she agreed to a local excision, but then we had the debate about the radiation therapy. And I really think it's important that we continue to at least excise DCIS outside of clinical trials. Now, for this low-grade, screen-detected, estrogen-receptor-positive DCIS, sure, join a clinical trial for watchful waiting. But outside of a trial, we need to be excising these because... It is a bad thing to develop invasive breast cancer, and at least excising is quite robust for reducing the progression rate. But then you get to the question about radiation, and we know that DCIS is not as sensitive to radiation as invasive cancer. If we do lumpectomies for invasive cancer, radiation will reduce the recurrence rate down to a third. You know, it's a threefold reduction. But for DCIS, it only cuts it in half, and it's a low rate anyway after excision. So we go half of a low rate is a lower rate, but that's where we need to have that discussion about do the risks of the radiation outweigh the benefits or do the benefits outweigh the risks. So again, we kind of couch this on what's the risk to the given patient, a very young patient going to have a more progressive lesion, a high-grade DCIS. So those are lesions that I generally would want to encourage the radiation. But an older woman, maybe over 70, with estrogen receptor positive DCIS that's not high-grade and who's going to be taking anti-hormonal medicine like an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen, that's somebody where probably we should avoid the radiation. You mentioned the oncotype assay specific for DCIS to try to assist in that decision. Do you ever utilize it? We have not used that oncotype DX assay for DCIS. It's interesting, and I suppose your lowest risk group, I would feel comfortable omitting the radiation, but you'd be doing a lot of those tests to find a woman, I don't want to speak against it at all, not having a lot of experience with it. I've been following the literature 
on the validations and all of that. I think it may have a place in the future, especially as we talk about trying to omit radiation. I just don't know at this point how often it helps me beyond looking at grade and size and hormone receptors. Well, for example, in this lady, what did you find at surgery? What did the pathology show? It was very consistent with the original imaging. It was no more than a 1.5 centimeter high-grade DCIS, and she had a margin-negative excision. And because it was high-grade, you know, I recommended radiation. She hasn't actually come to a decision yet, but I would encourage that in a family member because there are, as I tell my patients frequently, you know, there are DCIS lesions that should be respected and some that don't need that much respect, and there are, same with invasive breast cancer, And this is one that should be respected. So I had recommended treating it by the standard protocols. Do you know what the ER in HER2 is on the lesion? Oh, yeah. The ER was negative and the PR was negative. We don't do HER2 anymore routinely on the DCIS. Getting back to this lady, so it sounds like she didn't just jump up and say, okay, where's the radiation therapy place? So she's thinking about it. Yeah, people are hearing more and more about long-term risks of radiation therapy. You know, undeniably an increased risk of coronary events over decades. There's the acute risks of skin and bone toxicity. The treatment planning, though, has become so much better over the last few years with the CT planning. And I think all the techniques have kind of come together to limit dosing to lung and heart. But, you know, the epidemiological studies do show an increased risk, very small, you know, of lung cancer and esophageal cancer. These are small, small risks. And people hear about these things. I think more and more they're challenging their radiation oncologists to really add up the benefits against the risks. So this lady, you know, when we talk about using genomic assays, and we'll talk about that also in a little bit, we talk about the situation where it's really going to change or really matters in terms of what's done. This lady's academic. She seems pretty proactive. She's thinking about every decision. I'm curious, did you bring up the possibility of doing the oncotype on her lesion? And if you didn't, do you think that if you had, she would have been interested? Yeah, that is a very good point. And, you know, I did not bring up the idea of doing the oncotype on her. And I think she would have been interested being, you know, a person that's very information conscious and proactive getting information. It's not too late to do that. So that's a very good point. And this might be the situation where that test would contribute something. One other thing in terms of management of DCS, as long as we brought up now, This lady, interestingly, the DCIS is ER negative. I'm curious how you would have approached her or how you generally approach the more typical patient with ER positive disease and also what you thought of the presentation at the last ASCO meeting of the NSABP trial looking at uh, nasterzol versus tamoxifen in these patients. The ER positive patient presents more opportunities because there is this option for an adjuvant systemic therapy that's known to reduce local recurrence risk, and that is antihormonal medicines. And it's interesting that just like an invasive cancer, the aromatase inhibitors 
have more potent effect on breast cancer-specific survival, local recurrence, contralateral risk, more potent than tamoxifen in postmenopausal women. Especially true for lobular cancers, kind of the poster child for ER-positive breast cancer. So I think as surgeons, we all need to recognize that local recurrence risks are decreasing over the last several years, and that's mostly tied, not because we're wonderful and doing much better surgery, it's mostly tied to the use of systemic therapies like chemotherapy, anti-hormonal therapy, and HER2-targeted therapies. And our surgeries need to kind of respect that and be toned down and become less invasive and less intrusive because these systemic treatments are targeting the relevant biology and producing the effect of reduced local recurrence. So for ER-positive DCIS, we treat them all the same surgically, but I strongly encourage the use of systemic anti-hormonal medicines for those that have a lumpectomy. And again, the whole idea is to reduce the risk of an invasive cancer in the future because we don't want to have to mess with that. Maybe you can talk about another one of your cases, a 28-year-old lady. Yeah, this may be a little controversial, you know, in the way I managed her, but she's 28 and came in with bilateral breast masses and underwent mammography, sonography, and ultimately MRI, and she was diagnosed with multicentric triple positive breast cancer in both breasts that was also lymph node positive. And triple positive breast cancer, of course, is estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, and HER2 positive. When we see triple positive breast cancer in a very young patient, we need to think about Lee-Fermeni syndrome and think about doing testing for a mutation in P53. Maybe about a 9% probability that somebody like this would have been positive, and she was tested and was negative, as are about 90%. But this is the phenotype that we look for for Lee-Fermeni syndrome. But she, as with many of our HER2-positive tumors, and certainly with any lymph node-positive tumor, we send them to medical oncology before we do surgery and get their opinion about doing chemo before the surgery. There's no survival advantage to doing that, but I know for somebody that's got an extensive multicentric cancer, the chance that I can do less surgery and still get clear margins is greater if they've had a great response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And we also get the prognostic information that comes from looking and quantifying the residual disease after the chemotherapy. So it's not that we act on that information by giving more chemo or different chemo, but you know, it's one piece of the equation about how am I going to do, how should I plan going forward. Of course, another issue with this patient is the fact that she's HER2 positive, which means that she'll be able to receive pertuzumab neoadjuvantly, maybe a little more problematic if it's post-op. Yeah, I think that issue is correcting itself now. But certainly a year ago, if you wanted exposure to pertuzumab, you had to get your chemo in a neoadjuvant setting. I'm hearing the poor medical oncologists, they do have to go to bat for each of these patients if they want to use pertuzumab post-op as an adjuvant. 
But you're exactly right. Historically, recent history has been, if you want dual HER2 blockade with trastuzumab and pertuzumab, best to do it up front. Yeah, actually, you're right, though. We had an abstract accepted for a poster at San Antonio. We did a survey and determined that about half the oncologists in the United States are using pertuzumab off-label post-op in the adjuvant setting. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It's a wonderful combination. So what happened with this lady? So it looks horrible at the outset. And so she got a complete clinical response. When we got done with the chemo, which was docetaxel, carboplatinum, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, we re-imaged her with MRI, mammogram, and sonograms targeting the axilla. And she'd had a complete clinical response. There was no sign of disease anywhere. So for me, you know, the management of the breast, you know, she had multicentric disease. She needs a mastectomy as far as I'm concerned. We definitely don't have any data about not doing surgery on people with a complete response. There's a European study that did show pretty high recurrence rates, but that was done without very systematic imaging. So I think eventually we may get to the point of not doing surgery after complete clinical responses in certain subtypes of breast cancer, maybe the ER-negative HER2-positive subtype, which has the very highest response rates. But at this point, you know, it's definitely advisable to do the surgery. I knew I needed a mastectomy for the breast. And I am fine, you know, with the nipple sparing approach, again, being very thorough to remove all of the breast tissue behind the nipple in the axillary tail. And as long as the breast tissue and the tumor or any tumor are removed with clear margins, I think surgically that's fine. I'll just mention that the criteria for selecting patients for nipple sparing mastectomy have relaxed over time. You know, 10 years ago, it was tumors had to be two centimeters away from the nipple and unifocal. But as we gain experience with this and recognize that you can remove the whole breast without punishing the nipple, the criteria have relaxed. And just another word about that is, you know, if you do a standard mastectomy and then do a full thickness biopsy of the residual skin, You'll find some residual duct lobular units in a certain percentage of patients, maybe, you know, 35, 45%. Similarly, if you do a nipple sparing or if you excise the nipple and look for duct lobular units there, you don't find them in everybody, but you'll find them in, you know, 40, 45%. And same with inframammary fold tissue. So the point being that there's nothing particularly special about the nipple in terms of being breast skin. It can have terminal duct lobular units in it, just like other parts of the skin can, or right up to it. So I've really relaxed my criteria for selecting women for nipple sparing. So that being said, the breast, we did a nipple sparing mastectomy. And then you get to the question of what do you do about the lymph nodes? And she was somebody that had positive lymph nodes at diagnosis. And you have to say the community standard of care would be to do axillary dissections on both sides. And what we find, though, with these HER2-positive tumors is with this relatively high pathologic complete response rate is we're taking out an awful lot of normal lymph nodes. Now, we have... Thankfully, there's a NSABP trial and an Alliance trial now where 
women who have positive nodes at the start of chemotherapy will have nodal sampling with a sentinel node biopsy. And then if they have residual disease, they get randomized to axillary dissection or axillary nodal radiation or regional nodal radiation. And if they have no residual disease, they get randomized to no additional therapy or just regional nodal radiation. So we've kind of, we have trials to embrace all of these women that had positive nodes initially and then got a complete clinical response. But many surgeons are doing this sentinel node biopsy in this setting off of trial. And again, there need to be some special care taken when we do that. We should definitely use dual tracer, both blue dye and radioactive dye. We should make sure we remove at least three lymph nodes and we x-ray the nodes to make sure we got the node that had been biopsied and clipped initially that had definitely shown cancer. Now, if those show no residual disease, I've been omitting the axillary dissection. The radiation oncologists are going to radiate a woman like this, and I think we need to be really careful about who we subject to both axillary dissection and regional nodal radiation. The lymphedema rate, you know, gets up around 30% in that population. So more and more, even in somebody that had been node positive, we'll do this very careful sentinel node and then have a discussion about do we combine axillary dissection and radiation or do we just do the radiation? So what happened with this lady? So she had a pathologic complete response. You know, we did the sentinel nodes on each side. We got several nodes out. I was being very compulsive in her, and I think we ended up with five or even seven nodes, which is probably more than we needed. But, you know, we used the blue dye and the radioactive dye, and we x-rayed them to make sure we get the clip nodes. And there was no cancer in any of those nodes. There was no cancer in the breasts. She got immediate expander reconstruction, and as soon as she had been inflated, and I believe they even finished off her implant reconstruction, she looked beautiful, and the radiation oncologists, now they're at this crossroads where they have to decide, do we radiate based on the initial clinical stage, or do we make our decisions based on the final clinical stage after neoadjuvant chemotherapy? And there's a lot of discussion and controversy around that topic. I think you'll find them pretty evenly divided. And in this case, they felt compelled because of the multicentric cancer and the original nodal burden to do the chest wall radiation and the regional nodal radiation. And again, that's doable after a nipple sparing mastectomy with the implant reconstruction and she got very little toxicity, and she's probably a year out now and looks wonderful. And I assume she got post-op, she got trastuzumab for a year? Yeah, just a year of every three-week trastuzumab. Let's go on and talk a little bit about the issue of margins in breast cancer, and maybe we can get into this by talking about your 60-year-old lady. Yeah, I actually have a couple of 60-year-old ladies who are similar, but This 60-year-old lady had screen-detected, two-centimeter infiltrating ductal cancer who had a partial mastectomy. And again, we ink all six sides. We treat each partial mastectomy incision as a block with six sides, and we paint it with six different colors of ink, and then ask the question, how much normal breast is there between the ink and the tumor? 
And four of those sides, there was a lot, more than three millimeters. And for two, there was less than one millimeter, but the ink didn't quite touch the tumor. And so in that situation, you have the question of, do I need to go back and do a re-excision? I mean, what's the optimal margin? Should it be two millimeters, three millimeters? And this has been debated my whole career. And we got to thank Monica Morrow and the people with Astro, SSO Astro came out with this white paper on margins last year or year before, I think, that included a new meta-analysis of local recurrence rates according to margin width and concluded that no ink on the tumor was acceptable margin. And in general, I think that's very, very true, and uh, I know our group has adopted that for most patients. So in this patient has an invasive cancer, not an extensive introductal component, and a couple margins that are close but negative for her invasive cancer, we're done, we're fine with that and we can anticipate a reasonable, a very low actual local recurrence rate after radiation. Just out of curiosity, what was the ER in HER2? ER positive, HER2 negative. Right, and she was sentinel node negative? And sentinel node negative, yeah. So I'm curious, did this lady have an oncotype done on her tumor? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where finally we're getting a molecular test that's helping us clinically Although there's still controversy on that because you'll find some groups, you know, including some of our folks, have data about just look at the ERPR, HER2, and KI67, and can you estimate the oncotype based on that? And the answer is you probably can. But nonetheless, the oncotype assay 21 gene recurrence score gives us a score between 0 and 100 that is related to the risk of distant relapse if you're treated with tamoxifen only. And also is predictive in the sense that with the higher risk tumors, there's more benefit to the chemo. So, and it's four estrogen receptor positive tumors that are node negative. And I'd say we use it very frequently. And for a two centimeter tumor like this, you could say, you know, the tumor's large enough, let's just give chemo. Or you could say, let's look at the biology and see what the recurrence risk is. And if I recall correctly, she had an oncotype score of something like 13 or 14, which is at the lower end and tells us that there's just really not going to be much benefit to adding chemo to tamoxifen or anti-hormonal therapy. So she got spared the chemo. It's interesting. And like you said, two centimeters tumor. This lady up until, you know, the early 2000s was definitely getting chemotherapy. Yeah, through most of my career, you know, a tumor more than one centimeter, that's who got chemo. But I'm glad that people realized we were over-treating a lot of the population and starting to scale back. What was this lady's attitude toward chemotherapy? If she had a high recurrence score, would she have been willing to take chemotherapy? Well, that's an important question because, you know, just like every breast cancer is different from every other breast cancer, the spectrum of psychologies in women who get breast cancer is so diverse. And it ranges from kind of a laissez-faire, like let's take care of it when it happens, and I've got a lot of stuff to do, and I'm just not going to mess with this very much, all the way up to, my God, it's breast cancer, and we've got to do everything that we can do. And, you know, yes, I want chemo. Yes, I want radiation. And then everything in the middle. 
And this woman was much like most women, where the idea of surgery was pretty acceptable. But you start talking about chemo, and her whole demeanor changes. And that's something she really, really did not want to do. And in her case, she was very, very happy that there was a way to escape it, and it was a medically sound way. So a couple other issues going back to the issue of margins. The white paper you talked about didn't deal with the issue of DCIS. What about margins in DCIS? Historically, 25 to 35 percent of women who have a lumpectomy end up going back to the OR to get a re-excision. And in 25 to 40 percent of those, there is some residual cancer seen, and it's usually DCIS. But in the rest of them, there is no residual cancer seen. So DCIS is special. You know, we discuss this with the patients because the duct system is like a subway, and DCIS cells are modal, and they can get quite a ways away from the main tumor mass just crawling through that subway system. And so if we have a closer positive margin, it's most likely to be DCIS in a tumor that has a DCIS component. And if you find a margin that's close for DCIS, you're more likely to find residual cancer when you do your re-excision. So we've got the white paper. It says we don't need to excise if there's no ink on tumor, but we still have to be doctors and individualize each of those decisions. So if I've got one or two margins close for DCIS, close being less than a millimeter, I'm going to take that patient back and do a re-excision, and I'm often going to find that there was residual DCIS there. In terms of margins, there was a paper earlier this year in the New England Journal, a study of cavity shave margins. What is that, and what do you think about it? I do cavity shave margins. One of my junior colleagues back in Texas introduced me to the idea, and at first I was resistant. I was thinking, I don't want to prolong my operation. I don't want to take out a bunch of normal breast tissue. It's going to impact cosmesis. But of course, I was wrong about all of that. And with cavity shave margins, in general, you do a more focused, limited initial lumpectomy and get the tumor out grossly, not try to get big margins. And we use specimen mammography to help us know that we have that tumor in the center of our specimen. And then you go shave off all six of the margins that we are talking about, and just a thin shave, just a couple of millimeters. You do medial and lateral, superior, inferior, anterior, and posterior. And I have to emphasize that you know there's great variability in this technique as there is with all surgery. And I make an effort to shave off something that looks at least like a postage stamp, you know, that was right adjacent to where the cancer came out, and sometimes larger than a postage stamp if the cavity's larger. And I know people who just pinch off a little tissue near the cancer. I'm not too enthusiastic about that. But I know that my re-excision rate went from about 35% to 12.5% when I started doing the cavity shave margins. And that's a good thing. And there have been studies published looking at volume that's excised, whether you do just a, for people who do standard lumpectomies with no shaves versus those who do the more focused lumpectomy followed by shaving. 
And total volume is actually less for the shavers than it is for the standard lumpectomies. And cosmesis is as good. There's no difference. So we're really not removing a whole bunch of normal breast tissue, not great volumes, and we're not impacting cosmesis. But we are sparing more patients a return to the operating room. So I do that, but it harkens to the idea that we need a way of assessing our margins in the operating room. And there are some devices coming out using different physical principles to do this, hyperspectral imaging and optical coherence tomography, different autofluorescence techniques. And I've worked on those in Dallas, and we have Lisa Jacobs here has a protocol evaluating a new device here at Hopkins. And these are the promise for the future. They're not, in my mind, ready for prime time in terms of having well-defined sensitivity and specificity. It comes down to the pathologist telling us that margin's clear or it's not. So another question, uh, you were talking about Ocotype before, and the patient that we were talking about had a node-negative tumor. What about Ocotype in patients with node-positive disease? There's a trial out there looking at it, one to three positive nodes. Are there situations where you or your medical oncologist want to see an Ocotype in a patient with a node-positive tumor? That's a great question. I think you're talking about, I call it the R-Exponder trial, but I think some people call it the Responder trial. And it gets back to, you know, what about nodes? You know, what do they really tell us? And we've been preoccupied with lymph nodes for over 100 years. I mean, William Halstead, he was the first chief in the Department of Surgery at Hopkins. He got us going with these radical lymph node dissections and you know, the idea was we were going to interrupt progression and save lives, but by the 60s and 70s, we recognized that that probably wasn't the case. But by late 70s, we're, you know, starting to do the chemo, and we need a way to identify women who should get chemo. And so nodal staging remained in vogue, you know, right through my training. We used to do x-ray dissection on every patient just for nodal staging. We knew we weren't impacting survival but we were, it's for nodal staging, figure out who's going to get chemo and who's not. And then thankfully, sentinel node biopsy came in in the mid-1990s, and we could spare women that morbidity. And we were still after that information. But now in 2015, we start to ask, do we really need that information to decide who should get chemo and who shouldn't? Can we do something better biologically? One thing about the lymphatic drainage channels of the breast is they drain to the lymph nodes, but they have connections with little venules that act like pop-off valves, so we don't develop a lot of pressure in our lymphatic channels. So if cancer cells are getting into a lymph node, we know they're also getting into the circulation through those little pop-off valves. But most breast cancer cells aren't capable of growing in other organs, so they don't really pose a threat. But this subgroup of breast cancers that did take up residence in a lymph node, they are telling us that there is a relationship with the host that is permissive to the cancer growing outside of the breast. And we use that as a surrogate for asking, can the cancer now grow in the liver and the lung and bone? Well, it takes very special machinery to grow in a lymph node that isn't necessarily the same machinery 
as required to grow in the bone, for instance. So at best, it's kind of a surrogate marker of a tumor that may have potential to grow in distant organs. So can we use a test like the Oncotype DX to interrogate the biology of the tumor, just ignore the nodal status? And does this have a biology that's associated with a high risk of distant metastases? I think it's a fantastic question. I would predict that the Rxponder trial will show us that patients with low-risk biology even if they're node positive, have low-risk biology. They are not likely to develop disseminated disease. What about outside a clinical trial setting right now? Are you comfortable with your patients with one to three positive nodes getting an oncotype? I'm a surgeon, and so I am comfortable, but I'm not the one that ultimately has to decide this for the patient, whether they get chemotherapy or not. And Pretty uniformly, the medical oncologists I have worked with are not comfortable using the oncotype in the node-positive patient outside of a trial.